Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Doctor Is In. I am your host, Dr. Nadia Saba, and this is our special series, What Plants Crave. Today's guest is Wayne Bishop, who's the CEO of Seven Points Cannabis in Woodlake, California. What's super cool about his farm is that it is built into an old orange processing plant in the Central Valley. Uh, Wayne is an engineer who has focused much of his career on sustainability, including the production of renewable and bioenergy, which I'm super excited to talk a little bit about uh, today during this conversation. Welcome, Wayne. It is so great to have you on this podcast. Hey, Nadia. It's a pleasure to be here. and Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. So first, um, talk a little bit about yourself and, and, and help our, our listeners get to know you a little bit. How did you find cannabis? How did you go from renewable and bioenergy and, and get yourself into this crazy industry of cannabis cultivation? Yeah, sure. It's a great question. So uh, I've been doing energy for like 30 years, so I'm kind of an old guy. But uh, my dad was a cannabis user, and he was a paraplegic, so he used it for his ailments. And um, when he passed, he left me a little bit of money, and I thought it would be no better way to kind of pay it back to him than other than get into this industry. And so I purposely made a decision to get out of energy and get into cannabis directly. And ironically, I ran into an amazing family uh, who are investors of Seven Points, and I made one pitch deck to them through a mutual friend, and they liked it. And they said, hey, Wayne, why don't we, uh, why don't we start looking for a property? And I'm like, okay. So I was living over on the coast, and so I was looking at my backyard, and they lived in the Central Valley, and they started looking at their backyard. And next thing you know, they found this pack house. I said, hey, come look at it. I'm like, okay. So I get there, you know, like typical the people that owned it prior to them were uh, they turned the lights off and seven years later we showed up. And so all the cobwebs, all the pack equipment was in this thing, no power or walk around with our cell phone lights on, you know, crawling over stuff. And then after about a couple hours, I said, what do you think? And I'm like, well, it's got all the right bones, but it's going to take a lot of work. And literally 24 hours later, we closed escrow and we've never stopped. Wow. That's really, and so, that's super crazy. It is kind of crazy. And from the time we bought the building to the time we had our first harvest was 18 months. And I led up construction and I did all the permitting myself. But I mean, that's moving pretty fast in this crazy world it's, with all this bureaucracy of getting permits. Um, but luckily, I had some background to do that. Yeah. And then that didn't even include the fact that the property was in the county, it wasn't in the city who had regs. So we had to annex the property in. And I could take a year or two, but we did that in about four months. And then we started cranking on the permitting. And lo and behold, here we are you know, almost three years later, and we're producing about roughly about 100 pounds of flour a week uh, in a perpetual harvest. That's awesome. I mean, that's that's a lot of hoops to jump through to get this facility up and going, and you did it so quickly. I mean, any tips or any insights into why you were able to do it so quickly? Uh, my best tip is never take no for an answer. Never stop. Never give up. Uh, and trust in yourself and trust in who's with you. It's a tough space to get in. It's a tough space to stay in. And I think right now with the turn down the market, it's it's applying a lot of downward pressure on operators uh, with these suppressed prices and this oversupply in the market. But again, you know, like any industry, you're going to go through a nutrition period. And I think that's where we're at. I think there's been a couple of cycles. I don't think we're through all the cycles yet before we reach an equilibrium in this market. And I think when it goes federally legal, that'll change again. But, you know, that's where we're at. What makes it so unique? I mean, you're in the Central Valley, um, more or less, uh, here in California. What is unique about growing cannabis in that area? You know, I, I kind of think about a lot of hot spots in California, Northern California, including Sacramento and Emerald Triangle, the Bay Area, L.A., are you able to serve a different sort of customer clientele base? Is there something um, beneficial about being where you are specifically? Maybe because you're in ag country, that's a good thing or, or maybe a bad thing? I actually think it's a good thing. So we're smack dab in the middle of state, right? So I can be in the Bay Area or in LA in equal time in about four hours. So I think geographically, it gives us the ability to service both markets. Because uh, Bakersfield is a fairly long state. Plus, you know, we're in this area that, you know, it's, I would say it's inexpensive labor, uh, inexpensive land. 
Yeah, and I think our city that we're in has is, is been working with us very, very well. Uh, they're very cannabis pro, and so they've been super supportive of us getting into operation. Yeah, I think for all those reasons, it makes sense to be where we're at. And, you know, we launched a mobile delivery service about eight, nine months ago. And so now we take it right to your home in about a couple of hours. We're trying to get to a one-hour window. Um, we're servicing a 70-mile radius. So between Fresno and Bakersfield is our market. And so I, I think even though we're kind of out in a podunk in the middle of the woods that, you know, we find a way to get it to you. So that's very cool. Do you think that that's the direction the industry is going with mobile delivery services? Um, I, you know, I, we don't we don't use mobile delivery services, or I don't myself. And uh, the people that I've talked to that do say that they have a, a much bigger variety of products than if they went to a local dispensary. Would you say that that's true? Yeah, I would. And I also, I mean, I believe, I believe in both brick and mortar and non-brick and mortar. I think we both have our place currently, but I also believe there's a lot of clientele that won't go into a dispensary. Either they physically can't, or they have a profile that, that they don't want to be seen in one of those stores. So that gives us the ability to take those people, uh, what they're looking for. And so I think to me, that's a cool attribute about mobile. And I think, you know, when the saying fairly goes legal, then I think we'll be working like towards an Amazon model where Hopefully we'll have drones in the air and we'll be dropping the stuff off at your house and credit card transactions and, you know, take, trying to take the carbon out of a, a lot of this and trying to be efficient about how we run operations. Yeah, that's a good idea. What kind of license do you need to have a mobile delivery service? Is that a retail license or a transportation license or both? So, so you can actually get a non-storefront mobile delivery license from the Bureau. Uh, but you have to have a bill. Yeah, but you have to have the, your local authority has to endorse it to first first of all. And so, if you get a local permit, then you can go to state and get a state permit. And um, I basically converted part of our processing room into this mobile dispensary, so I already had what I needed. I literally just had to put up a division wall, add some more cameras, put some racks in, a refrigerator, you know, all the IT stuff, get some vans, and get some people. And so. It didn't take a whole lot to put that play into operation. What are the security issues associated with mobile delivery? I would say it's really, we haven't had any issues, knock on wood. Um, so I don't, I really can't speak to that. I think I'm more, I'm more concerned about our people uh, being on the road uh, than I am with carrying product at our facility. Our facility is big, it's secure. Uh, I'm not worried about that so much, just making sure everybody's safe on the road. So. Hmm. So why are you growing cannabis indoors? Why didn't you choose to to grow out in the old or the old orange orchard as opposed to the packaging or processing plant? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, first of all, um, this facility that we bought, and this is why I would redo <clears throat> another cold storage or another citrus processing house again, is because there's a lot of infrastructure. So this facility had 88,000 square feet under roof. There's an eight-acre site, had its own fresh water well, its own evap pond, its own fire water protection pond. We had 3,000 amps of 40-volt power. Uh, so we had all the bones to get going. Plus, we had about 300 tons of refrigeration built in this building. And even though it's an old-school R22 system with big coils hanging in these rooms, believe it or not, and they were never designed to do this, uh, it was designed for cold storage for citrus, but we actually tricked out the controls and made it work. And everything that's there is operating. So the R22 system's operating, all the coils. You know, we have the ability to put all these lights in. Um, yeah, and we actually operate the coils in kind of a cool way. So we have variable speed drives on our coils. And so it gives me the ability to uh, speed up or slow down the airspeed across the coil. And so when I do that, I can either act that, make that coil act as an AC or I can make that act as a dehumidifier. If I slow down the airspeed, I get more contact time across that coil and it just starts dumping water. So it can be either or, and sometimes we'll actually run a coil in one mode or another uh, to get the room to balance. So even though it may sound a little sophisticated, it really didn't take a whole lot to get it done. And I also am a controls engineer from back in the day. So I actually came up with the design and, and implemented it. but. You know, it actually worked, and we actually balanced out very well on both energy and cooling capacity, and so that's why we went indoors. But um, 
to answer your question a little bit further. So we have two more of those to go that are indoors. So I have two more 22,000 square foot licenses that are designed, ready to go to expand for two more phases indoor. And then we actually have a 50,000 square foot light depth greenhouse that we're gonna bolt on to the end of this building um, and also use mixed light. So full scale and full build, we're about 100,000 square feet of canopy and about 700 pounds of flour a week. So our intent is to do both. Now, the city won't let us grow outdoors. Uh, that's the way they wrote the regs. You have to be a mixed lighter indoors, but we're fine with that. I actually believe that we can cultivate underneath the right greenhouse. I know that term is used loosely in this industry. That we can actually grow an equal or better flower than we can indoors at a third of the cost. And considering the way prices has worked in this industry, that's the way we need to go. We need to figure out the lowest cost, highest quality production that we can possibly produce. And the only way we're going to get there is getting under glass and truly maintaining VPD control in these glass structures that gives us the ability to, to grow an outstanding flower with colors that you can't get indoors. I think you just answered what my next question was going to be, which is what about growing in a greenhouse do you think could have benefits over growing indoors? The quality and the colors, it sounds like, would be one of those reasons. Yeah, it is. And plus, you know, Mother Nature's working for you, right? And we're in an area that we get a lot of natural light penetration. We have a really high UV index. We have a very low uh, light pollution index. So we get a lot of UVs coming through. And besides that, we just, we need to, as an industry, you know, really, we need to work together. We need to share ideas and share concepts and help us all be stronger and not hold all these secrets to our chest and don't want to share them with anybody. Because that's really the only, that's only, only being selfish, but it's not doing the industry any good. And I think there's a lot of things we can learn also from the big guys that have been in greenhouses all these years, like the tomato guys, the peppers, the cucumber guys, right? That have under hundreds of acres of glass that have been doing on extremely thin margins and have been surviving for hundreds of years. <laughs> there's something to be learned there that we never really took the time to as an industry to integrate into cannabis. Why do you think cannabis went indoors, like fully enclosed indoors? From the beginning rather than focusing more on greenhouse controlled environments i think because it all started in a closet <laughs> honestly i think it's it, it started off in closets it ended up ended up and then going into garages and then going into warehouses and trying to scale but i think scaling indoors is a limiting factor right it's it's hard to put a hundred thousand square feet under a roof it's costly, it's expensive, it's expensive to run, expensive to maintain. You don't find those constraints in a greenhouse. You know, we can build cheaper outdoor in a greenhouse, we can have equal quality control, we can do, we can really have great VPD control if done right, done right with the right technology. And I'm not talking, you know, a poly greenhouse with, you know, 12 foot eve heights. I'm talking Benlow style structures, 21 foot eve heights. Same the gay, same thing the, the big boys are using in tomatoes, peppers, and cucumbers with full VPD control. And I think if, if you look at how greenhouses operate and using convection heat to escape out of their structure, it makes sense, right? It makes the lowest cost sense to produce something, food product or, or cannabis. Yeah. Do you, where, where you guys are located, is there any issues around odor control? I mean, I, I feel like that's one of the <clears throat> claims of why people go indoors is that you can contain those odors a lot more easily than if you're outside or, or in a greenhouse venting it out. Is that a concern for where you are? Um, so the way the regs are written now is the odor cannot leave your property. And so literally you could walk around our facility on a fence and you wouldn't smell anything. Our rooms are pretty tight. You really don't even smell cannabis until you walk up to our building. As soon as you start to come in the building, you, you start to notice that you're you're in a cannabis space. So I do think odor control is an issue, but I also think odor control can be integrated into greenhouse. That's not a that's not a pinch point in my concern for operations or design. Okay. Were there any uh, residual uh, smells or, or odors or aromas, whatever you want to call it, uh, from the orange um, packing shed or a cold storage facility? No, there wasn't any aromas left, but because we're in this orange belt, I mean, we're literally our neighbors. I mean, we're surrounded by citrus. Uh, when those citrus trees bloom, it's one of the most beautiful smells that you'll ever intake. Mm -hmm. And so because it was a pack house, and actually it's the same pack house that was originally owned by, I'm not going to mention her name, but 
it's where the cuties originated from. It all started at his facility. So the articles that get written about us are now from, from cuties to cannabis is how it kind of gets tied up, uh, which I think is suiting. And so we also, because uh, our investors are farmers, we're in a farm community, we're in a farm pack house, we keep farming and citrus true to who we are as a brand. You'll see that everything about us has this orange kind of content about it. We keep oranges in our brand. We are very old, sky, old school style on our branding. There's nothing kind of blinging over the top about us. And so really we're just, I would say a bunch of high-tech farmers, uh, but just very true to who we are as a company and who we're trying to portray in the industry. Do you know why that packing house specifically was, was closed? Was there just not enough supply in the area? Or did they just build a new one somewhere else? I think like a lot of companies, they end up growing into, end up growing in a way that they find better utilization by either upgrading or expanding other pack houses. And I think that's what happened on this case. The owner of this building that we bought it from doesn't usually sell assets. Um, I was kind of surprised that we actually even got it. It wasn't even on the market. It was through kind of word of mouth. But uh, I just think they they outgrew it in a way that didn't make any sense for them to process there anymore. And they could find more efficiencies at other, other locations they already had. Interesting. You know, when you started this facility, I mean, you, you did it so fast. I mean, you, you walked around with flashlights in the dark and the next day you decided to close on the property. I mean, that's quite a leap of faith in my opinion. How did you find your team, you know, your, your head grower and, and the other growers? I know that you said that because you're in, sort of this central place of agriculture that it was it was fairly easy to find supporting services and, and people. How did you go about doing that? And, and was it a hard sell to people to maybe leave their other type of ag jobs and, and come into cannabis or was it an easy sell? You know, I, I, there was a lot of cards that just fell into play on this one. Um, so the grower that I started this project off with Tremendous guy, phenomenal grower. I wish he was still part of the team, but he's no longer with Seven Points, unfortunately. But him and I are the ones that really put this whole thing together. And then um, and then that didn't work out. So, you know, here I was left without a grower, and I didn't know Jack about growing weed. And next thing I know is I got to figure this thing out fairly quickly because all my expertise left. Uh, which I'm sure somebody's went through these growing pains before that's listening to this, but I went through a crash course on how to learn how to cultivate cannabis. But luckily the team that we had there is there's been a lot of team members on this project that's been there from day one. And so really they just got brought up to the ranks. So we are really for all intentional purpose, I hate to even use this word head grower or master grower thing is a very kind of weird term. Uh, but we're actually running this facility without one. So actually what I, I consider our team leads, uh, but I do have one main guy in cultivation, don't get me wrong. But they're more like team leads. I have three, four people that run this entire facility. So I have one guy that's in charge of all the rooms. I have one person, one lady is in charge of our nursery. Um, I have one guy that uh, is in charge of all the fertigation system. Uh, then one guy in processing who processes all the flour into bulk or finished goods for us or our brand. And so really it's four people that are running this thing from start to end. Um, and they've, they've all been there from day one, uh, pretty much. One guy has quite not been there from day one, but just promoting within and growing that team, uh, no pun intended, has been the way we've operated. And that's how we're operating today. And I'll be honest with you, these rooms that we're running now are some of the best flowers we've ever produced. Uh, we've got some of the best, I think, finally genetics in our house that make a big difference. And it's funny because when we first started this thing off, you know, the guys were telling me, people that were buying our flower, like, oh, it'll take you a year to get this thing, you know, ironed out. I'm like, no way, it won't take us that long. Well, it took it took that and then some. But, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Everybody's still there and the team's running the facility and we're making some of the best flowers we've ever made. Were those people, those, those four team leads that you just talked about, were they originally in those kind of positions like was the fertigation guy always the fertigation guy um was the nursery lady always the nursery lady or did you kind of discover through them working different jobs and having different tasks that this is where their particular strong suit was or their passion was for for growing and working in this facility well, let me back up one step so there's one person i forgot and that's my ipm guy he's super critical okay he's also a pca yeah. So it's really those people that are run this facility. 
but we have an incredible support team. So I don't want to, I want to make sure they get acknowledged in all this. It's a great team altogether. Um, but no, to answer your question, almost everybody on this team had zero cannabis experience. So they've all been um, organically or however you want to say it, uh, brought up through the ranks and they've learned how to operate their space. And so very few people came with that background. And I think some of it's good, right? Because you don't have bad habits or old habits coming in. Um, so it gives you the ability to kind of put together you know, a program you want to see uh, and train people in a certain way. But And then plus, you know, we've built a really a lot of cool tools of how to cultivate with. We, My wife is a is also somebody who works with me in the business. She's also my APAR person. She's also my data analyst. She's also, she helps me in sales. It's incredible. But she built this, she's a software lady. So she, we actually run this program called Tableau and we integrated all this information into one, one data platform and we built it on our own. And this Tableau is not even made for this, but it turned out to be a really cool tool. So now I've got graphs and trends and all kinds of analytical tools at our fingertips to say, are we in the right direction or not? And do we need to make an adjustment? But that is, it's not just for cultivation. It goes into delivery. It goes into how we run the business. It goes into economics. It's a, it's a really cool tool we built in-house. And so we really we do operate from that. We actually have e-growth sensors in our facility from Grodan. Uh, we integrated that in. We actually take all of our environmental controls. We integrated that in. Uh, we take all of our drybacks and we take all of our runoff ECs and our runoff uh, ECs and our runoff volumes. We integrate that in and we, we look at all this on a daily basis and we say, okay, are we, running, are we running in the right direction or not? And then we make adjustments from that. I, I love to hear that, that you guys are, are collecting, not just collecting data, but analyzing that data to make decisions i'm i'm assuming on a on a daily basis weekly basis on a genetics potentially basis are, are you guys actually taking it all the way through to retail or say your your mobile delivery system where uh you know you have customers that particularly like a certain strain or particularly like this batch of that strain and you're like okay what did we do that was so good and how can we recreate it do you, do you guys actually go that far in analyzing your data? I wish we I wish we could, but that means you got to run a cultivar multiple multiple times to really figure out where it's where its equilibrium is at, right? And that's tough. And it's funny because we ran multiple strains multiple times, and I would say, dang, there every time it turns out different. In some ways, good, in some ways, bad. But really trying to understand and get the pulse and the heartbeat of a cultivar to maximize it is super tough. So to answer your question, we do to some degree, but a lot of the times we're running what we think are the best cultivars and also everything in our facility is tissue culture. So we're trying to get the cleanest, best genetics we can possibly get our hands on. We have a few suppliers we work with. We have one breeder now that we're getting uh, really, really boutique cultivars from out of the Bay Area that really there's only three or four of us that are running his genetics. And we just ran some rooms of that stuff and I was blown away by how how big the flowers were and how solid they were and the aromas and the structure. I, mean, I was just like, wow. And it's, you don't realize how much genetics play into this game. And if you pull them right and you run them hard, they can be amazing flowers that you just, you're, you're just blown away. And so it's amazing how much a genetic can make a difference. Genetics is dependent on the facility that you're in or, or how you're controlling the various environmental parameters. Yeah, how, how has that played into the evolution of, of, of the genetics you're growing today? Would you, let me ask it this way even, like, would you grow yeah. the same genetics today that you did a few years ago when you first started? I would say no, but I would also say there's so many crossbreeds going on nowadays that we are, to one degree or another, running a lineage of some genetic that we ran in the beginning. You know, believe it or not, Dosido is one of the cultivars and lineage that we're still running. You know, the gelatos are very hot right now. You know, anything purple, gassy is hot, you know. And then sometimes you find these, you know, fruity flavors that are just mind-blowing. We have a room right now full of a strain called Apple Blast. And as soon as you walk in, you could have swore you just took a big old bite of a green apple. And that's what you're tasting and smelling when you walk in that room. So, yeah. It's interesting how cannabis has these attributes to begin with, 
I mean, I'm still blown away every time I walk into a room and I smell something that's so pungent and so fruity or so aromatic. It's just like, how did this plant ever get that built into it? You know, it's just mind blowing. Yeah, there's so many different varieties. Um, there's one, I think, that we have now. It's like some sort of a berry strain. I'm not even sure which, which one, but it's something berry. And wow, when you open it, it just smells like blueberries. Uh, it's amazing. And there's one I like right now called lemon bean. But to me, it smells like sour apple. And so I think mm -hmm. it might be that sourness, like from the lemon that I'm getting yeah. that to me, it tastes yeah. more like apple. It's really fun yeah. to enjoy such a variety from, like you said, from, from the same plant that's uh, projecting these different attributes to say, hey, you know, like consume me. <laughs> I taste yeah, good. I look yeah. good. Yeah, for sure. You know, and a lot of it's based on what the, you know, it's not just the consumer, right? The consumer, in my opinion, has a certain education value or level of what cannabis is. And then you run into these buy, these guys, these bulk buyers, right? And they have a whole different level of expertise. And they have a certain quality threshold that they're looking for before they'll even purchase. But, you know, they're purchasing, you know, can be, you know, hundreds of pounds at a time from us. So, you know, their, their critique is different. I'll be, I'll give you an example. Consumer? I had a guy come in our facility. What's that? Then the consumer? Yeah, it is. It's funny um, because I'll give you an example. So I had this buyer come into my, for our facility yesterday, last night, very late in the evening, was inspecting some of my rooms. He's wanting to buy the whole room. And he's looking at these different genetics and he was giving me what he saw. He was talking as he's observing the flowers. But to a very detailed level, and he's telling me stuff like I like I don't necessarily know if I would have even picked up on it. And and he's saying things to me, I'm just like, wow, like I'm learning from this guy about what his buying expertise is and his knowledge, and I'm and I'm picking this up and I'm thinking, okay, well, those are great tips because next time we run this cultivar, we need to run it maybe a little bit differently. And so it's interesting for me because my knowledge of walking in dispensary, and by the way, I, my knowledge is not all that great on the dispensary side, but the basic assumption that I have for main, most buyers in the dispensaries are really primarily looking at THC values, THC and dollar values. And are trying to get the most THC for the lowest amount of dollars. And that's not the way to really buy cannabis. I'll give you an example. I don't go to, I don't go to a liquor store and I don't buy 200 proof alcohol. You know, I go there to buy a bourbon that it tastes so good to me that that's what I want to sip on for the rest of the evening. So to me, the consumer and the big bulk buyers need to start working toward terpenes. Terpenes is where the game's at. And that's a, that's a side effect that is absolutely ignored in this industry, that that's where the real value is at. And so to me, I think it's going to go more towards that. Um, and that's hopefully where the industry ends up at. And that's what they're paying for is the terpenes. How do we educate consumers that it's more than just THC? Well, I mean, everybody has a certain level that they want to get high at, right? I'm, I'm one of those guys, like, I can take one hit and I put it down on the guts all I need. I'm good. So it really depends on the consumer and what level of, you know, like you go to an a person who drinks a lot of alcohol, they're going to consume a high lot of alcohol in one day. So you find the same, the same side on the cannabis side. But, you know, even if that's the case, though, people are still drinking alcohol based on what tastes good to them. And they may consume too much, but that's their choice. But how do we consume, how do we educate the consumer? I think the consumer starts need to pay attention to the COAs, right? The, these are the certificates of analysis that every flower and every in every shop in California has to be grown through and tested to state levels where we break down every terpene profile. And and typically these COAs will have about 21 terpene profiles. But now I'm seeing COA in labs getting all the way up to almost a hundred uh, terpene profiles because there's more of terpenes than just 21. Those are the leading 21. But it's not the only terpenes. So the information is available to both the consumer and the big buyers. And I think that they just need to pay attention to that and understand what value that brings to the table uh, in either consumption or when it finally gets federally legal, right, to, you know, to the big players, right, the tobacco guys, the big pharma companies, when they start stepping in and, and doing acquisitions because this is where they get their market share from, right? Tobacco's lost its market share from teenagers stop, to stop smoking. And, you know, this is a replacement for opioids in the pharmaceutical side. So there's a lot of potential in this space that really is still to be valued. And we're not there yet. Yeah. 
I I look forward to the day when I go to a dispensary and there's like a a menu, kind of like if I was going wine tasting or something, and it was like you know has the taste of vanilla and apple and a finishing of anise or something. <laughs> I want to see us have these consumption lounges that are set up for tastings and pairings, right? So you pair a certain flour or a certain vape with a certain, you know, uh, cheese or a certain meat, right? Or a certain cracker. And, and maybe, maybe you are indulging in a glass of wine. Maybe you're doing all this at the same time. But, you're, but, you're, but your mouth is exploding with all these flavors, you know? So to me, that's where I think you start to have this other aspect of cannabis that is completely different than how it's being used or consumed today. So your, your dad, um, I, I did not know that about, about your dad and thank you for sharing that. Um, I don't even know a question I want to ask, but I just feel like that is such a personal touch or a personal, you have a personal investment in this plant. And how did your dad find medicinal cannabis and how did it, it change his life? If, if it's okay, if I ask that question. No, that's a great question. So, um, so my dad obviously was buying off the black market, right? There was no white market back then. Uh, and my dad really couldn't always get it or find it. So he actually started growing it himself. And I remember one day I was fairly young and he was living down on Long Beach and he was renting this apartment and he had taken one of the rooms and covered it over to grow. And I was in that room helping put together hydroponic flood tables. And I didn't even know what I was doing, but he was like, glue this here, put that board there. And we were building these four foot by four foot by two foot. We had these fiberglass tubs and we were fiberglassing boards in the middle of them with holes. And then the top half of the hydroponic pond was filled to a lava rock. And then he was seeding uh, these seeds, these cannabis seeds, and these little, like, little, little turds for better, for better reason. Uh, they were like little substrates. And then he had his whole reservoir in the closet, and it would automatically fill up these levels of reservoir all the way to fill to the top. And then he had all these lights hanging from the ceiling, and I was like, holy cow, now I know what we're doing. And, but my dad even went to that stint to actually cultivate his own flower. Wow. Has he given you any tips? I wish, I wish he was still around to give me some tips. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. Um, he doesn't even know. I mean, hopefully he knows what I'm doing from the top, but, um, and hopefully I'm paying back what I wanted to do, but he, uh, yeah, he passed away before I got into this industry. Do you sell a medicinal cannabis line? So we do have some lines that have uh, a little bit of CBD in them. Uh, and so we do carry some products at seven points on the mobile dispensary side. But I'm really looking forward to the day where we can kind of cross paths between CBD and THC because I think the two belong together. And I think CBD is a great carrier for THC. And I think Charlotte's story is a big, is a big piece of that, um, if you know what that's all about. But I think I want to get to a point where I'm actually growing like a one-to-one -one CBD to THC flower. And then actually marketing that, cultivating that, promoting that, and hopefully a way that's even more beneficial than just getting high. Yeah. I mean, I personally look for some percentage of CBD when I'm purchasing because I like the way that it makes me feel more. I, I feel a little bit more grounded and balanced than if it's just all THC. It kind of makes me jittery or hyper. And I don't necessarily like the high. I like the chill. And so finding yep. a blended flower, you know, because I don't really want to vape if I don't have to. Um, and so finding those flower options that have a good proportion of both is hard to find. So I, I would say that there's definitely a market for you. Yeah. I'll give you another example. So we're trying to work on a live resin uh, pen right now, which I think has, has a lot of market uh, value. And it's the closest thing to flower, right? And so I don't want to do extraction with, you know, solvents to produce a nice pen. And so I, I, I really believe in this because it's the closest thing to flour. But one of the byproducts of making this uh, from a bubble hash is that you create this uh, batter that's a waste product. 
And the guy that I'm working with, bless his heart, he actually figured out a way to turn that into a chewable Skittles. And so now we mix it with a one-to-one CBD and THC. It's about uh, one milligram of each in this little Skittle, Skittle thing. And we're going to market that and put that together like, a, like an M&M clear two package. And that's going to be one of the SKUs we're going to come out with pretty soon. But I hardly ever use cannabis, but I can tell you what, I take that thing once in a while. And it's amazing what it does to me. It puts me in this kind of talkative, bubbly atmosphere that I'm not usually that kind of person. And even I go home, my wife was like, who, what, who are you? Where did you come from today? Because I don't recognize you. <laughs> and I was <laughs> just like, yeah, well, this is what happened. So, but it's interesting how little things like that can make a difference to somebody like me. I don't use a lot of cannabis, but yeah, you know, again, a waste product can now be a value. So, you know, these are the kind of things we're trying to work on. And that's something very cool about the cannabis plant in general, I would say. And I think a lot of uh, our guests have have talked about is how much of this plant we can use and how something that that we would consider a waste can be used for something else in a in a positive way. So even even the batter that's produced from producing bubble hash, I love that you've turned that into a usable sellable product. That's awesome. That's the best. So tell me a little bit um, about energy. Let's talk about energy for a minute. Do you think that bioenergy and renewable energy, um, maybe even anaerobic digestion, has a place in cannabis production? I do, big time. And this is something that's really never been done, but my background uh, spills into this. So so I've, I've spent a big time in my career developing anaerobic digesters. And what's interesting about that is, so you basically, you're taking food waste and you're taking manure waste, you're sticking in this tank. In the absence of oxygen, it produces biogas. And 60% of that biogas is methane, primarily balanced with CO2 and a little bit of hydrogen sulfide. And then you typically would run that biogas through a combined heat and power engine, a single shaft, you know, up to 42% electrical efficiency, which is extremely high. And you generate energy, you generate kilowatt hours, and you can either tie that on a grid and sell it to the utility, or you, know, you can use it in your facility. And so that's what I want to do next is really work with producing biogas. Some of the projects we're working on now are basically taking that CO2 out and the hydrogen sulfide out and the water out, and it's all that's left over is pure methane. And we inject it in the grid, the natural gas grid, and then we dispense it as a low carbon transportation fuel. And it's got the lowest carbon trans- it's got the lowest carbon footprint of any fuel in the market. Uh, it's actually negative carbon uh, value. And so what I want to do is work with those guys to then uh, run that biogas with a mixture of natural gas to get to a carbon zero gas to run through the con- combined heat and power unit to then produce all of our power on site. And then from that combustion process, that heat, you run it through an absorption chiller and you get free cooling capacity. Uh, and then you also run it through a catalyst module and you split out the CO2 fraction and you inject that in your rooms for enhanced CO2 production. And then you also have the heat for dehumidification. So when you do that, you can actually generate power for about five cents a kilowatt hour, which is lower than any, any utility rate by two thirds at least. And you become super efficient at growing cannabis. And when we start to look at that market and we start to deploy those technologies, even though they're fairly expensive, you've got to be in this for the long haul, you can actually get to where you can produce a negative carbon flower at the lowest cost and the highest quality. And that's what we're trying to do. Wow. So first off, I didn't realize that you could blend biogas and natural gas together. What is sort of the what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, I want to say the fuel value. Yeah. So the calorific value. Yeah. The energy value. Yeah. Yeah. So it's typically called the calorific value. Um, it's how many BTUs per standard cubic feet or some basis like that. But so what you can do is when you're, when you're buying this biomethane out of the grid, I mean, it's a theoretical molecule, right? So it's all over the grid. You have no idea in time or in presence where it's at it's just theoretically in there so you theoretically inject it at one point you theoretically take it out at another point but you're also taking out equal amount of natural gas btus and when you get to the right ratio to become carbon zero value or even negative value then that's when you stop buying the biogas because the biogas is way more expensive than natural gas but it gives you the ability to produce that as a renewable energy fuel in your CHP plant 
and produces zero or negative carbon flour, which I think that's where this industry needs to get to. And integrating other technologies like solar, for example, right? Solar is not a great fit for cannabis because we're a really high demand, instantaneous kind of load. But we are looking at integrating solar with CHPs and having the two technologies on the same project. So getting all this free energy from the sun and having it basically have the CHP kind of load follow that PV kilowatt hour. So basically during the five to six sun hours a day, the CHP would ramp down uh, and let all that pure PV power come into play to go into the grow and then basically load follow that. So then you get the best of two technologies wrapped into a single cultivar that currently nobody that I know of uh, is doing. Wow. No, I haven't seen plants that are using both. I feel like it's one or the other. And like you said, when it comes to solar, there's, I mean, the size of the solar field that you would need to run an indoor cannabis facility is immense um, or any indoor farm for that matter. Um, You know, when it comes to greenhouses, there might actually be more of a correlation of when you would need powered systems like fans and pumps for say an evaporative cooling system and when the sun is out so that is an easy almost one-to-one ratio Um, but when it comes to indoor farms you could have the lights on at night you still need to dehumidify at night when the sun isn't out and of course it's very energy intensive so um, so i mean if i may just continue and ask another couple questions so if you're blending biomethane and natural gas, is that happening at like the utility plant and then it's all pumped and piped to your site? Or are you receiving natural gas from the utility and then generating that biomethane on site or locally, I guess, and then shipping that in and then blending it on site? So I'll give you a better example. So the Central Valley is also a mecca for the dairy industry, right? We have 1.8 million cows in the Central Valley. We have more cows than we do people. So right now, those cows are pooping and peeing and all that methane from that poop and pee is going to the atmosphere. So what these developers are doing is they're actually collecting that, putting it inside of an anaerobic digester, capturing that methane, purifying it, cleaning it up, and injecting it into the natural gas grid. And they're getting paid on that uh, from the low carbon transportation fuel standards. Yeah, it's happening right now. So they're injecting that gas in PG&E and SoCal gases lines currently. So what we're doing is we're just, you know, we're up the road, you know, maybe 100 miles, and we're theoretically pulling that biomethane molecule and uh, 100 uh, natural gas molecules out of that pipeline and running it through that engine. So it's a theoretical uh, consumption. And so they get paid for that. Uh, The developer on the biogas side gets paid for that molecule when I burn it or when it gets displaced or sold as, as a transportation fuel and dispensed into a vehicle. That's how he gets paid. I had no idea that that was happening right now. That's so cool. Yeah, it's, I, I think there's a lot of cool things about California and how we can um, do things that are different than any other state. We just have so much diversity here. You know, this is the only state that I say that I know we can literally go snowboarding in the morning and surfing in the afternoon. Uh, it's got that much diversity in California. And so these are things that are, in our, that are in, back, in our backyard that we can integrate into any kind of cultivation. So what's it going to take for you to actually apply this really cool concept on your farm? Well, I need about five million bucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, tech, this technology is not cheap. And I need to make sure that we can continue to sell flour day in and day out. And so... This market's fairly volatile right now, so it needs to get more stable before I would dump that kind of money into it. But, you know, when this thing goes federally legal and we have more surety around this business, uh, then I think that's the time you really start dumping major capital into it. And you basically, at that time, every one of your cultivation facilities has got GAP and GMP certifications. And this is where the big pharma companies come in, right? Because you are now generating a pharmaceutical grade uh, cannabis that can be turned into multiple things uh, that fit that industry. Yeah. So is there anything in terms of, of energy efficiency? I mean, we t- talked about like the production of energy. What about on the other side and the demand for energy? What do you do or, or what can growers do to reduce their demand for energy? 
Yeah, that's actually a big piece. So I don't know if most guys understand this, but there's two pieces to your utility bill, right? There's a demand charge that you pay for, and then there's an energy charge. And the demand charge is basically, it's a big bucket, and it depends on what your 15-minute demand is for the entire month. And if you don't understand that, then you're paying for energy that's within your control to minimize. So I'll give you an example. So it used to be, and I would say a lot of cultivators turn their lights all on at the same time. Right? They turn all the rooms on at the same time. Well, that ends up being your largest demand charge for the month. But let's say you got nine rooms. Well, now you need to stagger those rooms by 20 minutes because demand charges are in 15-minute increments. So if you set your demand, you turn your lights all on by 20 minutes apart, your largest room is going to be your highest demand charge for the month. And that's a big met, to believe it or not, that you can, that you can absolutely have control over. The other thing I would advise people on is to run on off-peak and super off-peak. Don't run your lights on on-peak and super on-peak. Look at the schedules from utilities. Try to figure out how to maximize the value because it actually there's a lot of things that actually complements a cultivation facility uh, operationally. There's a couple of pinch points you got to understand how to work around. But for the most part, you can, you can drop your energy consumption and your energy cost substantially if you know how to manage those two pieces. That is a genius recommendation on, I mean, both of those are, but that 20 minute stagger to avoid that 15 minute window of demand charge is awesome. I, I love that. I feel like everyone can take that home. Um, you know, running lights off peak, let me just ask you logistically, because we've had some clients who've, who've tried this where they might run 50% of their lights, you know, during normal hours, daylight hours, and the other 50% say at night. And they have just found it really challenging to find people to work <laughs> at two in the morning. Is that a concern for you? Or, or if not, how have you been able to address that and get over that, that challenge? It's actually not that big of an issue, right? So most nurseries run an 18 hour photo period, right? So 18 hours, your lights are on. And in flower, you're typically 12 on, 12 off. So if you actually think about how you can roll that over into off-peak hours, it actually gives you the ability to come in and work rooms with half the time lights are on and half the time lights are off. The benefit of that is now you can do all your IPM and normal hours during lights off period at nine o'clock in the morning. I don't have guys coming in now at three in the morning trying to spray IPM before the lights come on. So there's a lot of operational benefit and it takes out overtime and your staff, if you figure it out, it can actually be a net net benefit to any cultivator. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good perspective. And also, I feel like having people around at night, you know, things fail when people aren't at the facility, right? <laughs> Always on Christmas mm -hmm. and Fourth of July and at midnight on a Saturday night or something. So if you have a crew that's there throughout the day, then they can hopefully catch something and fix something. Yep. Before everybody yep. else arrives in the morning. Exactly. I mean, there's been so many times we've had to come in and work on uh, environmental controls, you know, uh, after uh, lights off, which is which is late at night. And you're already you already been there all day. So next thing you know, you're pulling a 16 or an 18 hour shift trying to fix something. But it gives you the ability to dial in your environmental controls and work on that kind of equipment during normal business hours instead of doing it at two or three in the morning. So, you know, if you really want to optimize and take out your peaks at light, light, you know, if you want to take out your humidity spikes at lights off and that kind of stuff, it gives you the ability to work on that hour where that occurs and really dial it in and not just kind of say, oh, well, that's the best we can do. It. Right. Not, not to mention finding service contractors to also maybe come out during normal operating hours or yeah. daylight hours as opposed yeah. to the middle of the night. For sure. Yeah, it's a big benefit all the way around. Yeah. Other than energy, what other metrics of efficiency uh, do you think about and, and do you try to implement in your farm? So I think another one is actually fertilizer, right? So most guys are buying fertilizer and nutrients out of the market. Uh, there's a bunch of big brands out there. I'd say there's a handful of them that are really, really good. And not that I'm trying to shy them away, but I, I, can, I can produce. So we actually mix our own salts on site. We make our own fertilizer on site. So we buy all the macros and micros and we make our own potions. I can make a fertilizer for about two cents a gallon. And there's nobody in this industry that can touch that price point. 
if you even get to big bulk contracts, the cheapest you're going to get is maybe eight to 10 cents a gallon from the big boys. Uh, so there's still, that goes to show you that there's still margin on the table that you can actually control and, and take that in-house if you've got the expertise. I do have a PhD, master's degree, horticulture, plant life, uh, plant science specialist on our team. Uh, he's actually a super cool guy, uh, one of the smartest guys I think I've ever met in this space, one of the best consultants we've ever hired. And he actually writes our formulas for us. And we actually are one of the few cultivators that doesn't run an RO. And so we have our own freshwater well on site. So we already have minerals and micros and macros in our well water. And because we're off the sequoias, we have really good water coming off the snowpack. Hydrology is always changing. So we basically run samples on our well water every month. And then we readjust our portions, our, our, our formula, uh, based on what's in that well water. But doing stuff like that and not wasting all this water from an RO through the reject process or through the permeate process is huge, right? That's just wasteful. That's waste. I mean, you're basically trying to get to zero because of why? Because that's what the salt formula is recipe for? Well, so what? Change it, you know? And because I'm also on our own well water, I don't, I don't have a city water bill. You know, it's our own water. We manage that very effectively. We try to run as low runoff as possible. We actually specialize our formula for that. So, I mean, these are things that cultivators can take advantage of if they get really, I guess, a little bit sophisticated about their business. Um, there's more margin to, to go to the bottom line. I mean, that's really interesting that you guys are using well water in, in drought-stricken California. Do you guys do anything to conserve that water? I mean, right away, by not using reverse osmosis, you're saving a bunch of water by not processing it and then dumping yeah. it to the sewer have you have you watched your your well levels drop? Are are you watching the drought every day, hoping for more snow and rain? Um, and and what are you guys doing, if anything, about water conservation? So I I want to tell something here. So water is probably one of the biggest things in California, right? Because right now we're going through Sigma, and Sigma is a program. The Region Water Quality Board has put forth basically two programs. One is the CV Salt program, one's the Nitrate program. And so basically they want they want to get to where it's a zero water balance for anybody consuming water from the aquifers in California. I don't know how in the hell that's gonna happen. But if the only thing I can think of is that basically everything that we're cultivating outdoors goes under glass. Right. So I see California getting more and more in the greenhouse space. And I even see trees going under glass at some point in time. But I think that's where this industry is going. And who owns the water and who controls the water is controlling the heartbeats and the arteries of California. And right now, there's a handful of water banks in the state. There's a handful of people who own those water banks. There's a handful of very rich farmers who control that water. And it's a big deal. And if we don't get smart and understand this as an industry, we're going we're gonna to be left on the sidelines with no water. And we're doing everything we can to be smart about it, to understand how to use as little water as possible. You know, I think, Nadia, you know this, but just dehumidifiers, right? You're capturing all that clean water from these plants transpiring. Capture that and reuse it. Don't let it go to waste. That's clean, fresh water that you can absolutely put right back on the plant. And, you know, go to a nutrient recovery system if you have to. Recoup all your newts and just circulate them and only add what your plants are taking away and only add the water that's evaporating. Um, that's how you get really, really efficient at cultivating. And I don't think this industry is quite there yet, but we do some of that already. We actually do capture all of our condensate water from our dehus. And so we're trying, to, we're trying to work on a way to bring that water back around. And eventually I want to get to where, uh, I think I broached this to you a little bit earlier, but actually using techniques that are available in the technology to get to a zero water loss. So I'm only using as much water as that plant absolutely needs and no more and no less. Um, you know, some some people, when I bring up the idea of capturing condensate from dehumidification, I would say one out of four people ask, well, what is the quality of that water? Are you concerned about, you know, microbials? Are you concerned about heavy metals? Have you ever tested the water quality coming back from that condensate that would give you any concern that it's not clean water to use? Or, or could just normal water treatment uh, work uh, to, to clean that up before reusing it? 
So what I can tell you is that we are using UV lights in our in our water process to uh, kill biology. Uh, it's a major player in our program. Before we integrated UV, we had a lot of biofilm building up everywhere, and we no longer have that. We hardly ever change a filter. We hardly ever clean a tank. We hardly, hardly ever do anything on our fertigation system uh, around that specifically, and that comes from UV light protection. Uh, the metals, there's, you're always going to find metals. What I have found is that you just have to be able to manage that position. So, yeah, you do need to do water analysis. You need to do some chemistry to figure out what's in that condensate and can it be reused or not. But for the most part, we haven't found it to be an issue. You know, a lot of these coils that we're running in these rooms are clean, right? They're either brass coils with aluminum fins. So there are metals, don't get me wrong, but they're not at high enough levels that are, we've never failed a COA on metals, put it that way. Nice, nice. People might not also realize that brass and copper actually have antimicrobial properties. All of our, um, what do you call them? Our special metals, gold, copper, silver, all have my antimicrobial properties to them. Um, in fact, it's actually, just to go off on a short tangent here, um, rich people used to be called blue bloods, right? And, and, and it was caused by eating some silver spoons and the silver would actually get in their blood and they tended to be healthier. I'm sure for lots of reasons they were eating better and they, you know, maybe had some level of health care um, compared to the peasants. But some people believe also eating from silver also help protect them against infection. So, you know, thinking about brass, bronze, copper fittings and coils and pipes could actually be a good thing um, and clean yep. the water instead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think you said that. Yeah, that's true. No, that's cool. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, do you consider this industry, cannabis, to be collaborative or competitive, or maybe both? I'd say it's a lot more competitive than it's collaborative. Uh, like I said, people hold a lot of trade secrets close to their to their chest. Um, I really wish there was more information available on the internet and everywhere that you could actually get access to, um, but there's not. I wish the I wish our cannabis trade organization like CCIA would figure out a way to bring growers together so that we could share stories, uh, that we could collaborate. I think even not just trade secrets, but I think also just business strategies. You know, I think if we work together, there's a, we're, we're stronger collectively and growing this industry than we are individually. And I think if we think that we're going to do this alone, we're kind of fooling ourselves. And I think the more collaboration, the more partnerships, the more openness there is, that this industry becomes stronger and not weaker. Have you been able to find a network of growers um, and other business owners who have been willing to open up or do you feel sort of like you're on an island? I think it really takes time to develop relationships. And I think relationships are key in this space as they are in anything, but there's only a handful of guys that I talk to on a regular basis that I trust in. And I feel like I talk openly, which isn't a lot. So I think that just goes to show you, I mean, I've been doing this for three years now, um, but which is still relatively new for, for an industry, but there's, there's just not a lot of collaboration out there. And, and this is a very, <laughs> I hate to say this, but this is a very flaky business. Um, there's a lot of flaky people and it's, this business doesn't operate on a nine to five clock pattern. And uh, so, you know, I'm getting text messages late in the night. I mean, I'm, I'm already in bed. You know, but I'm an early, early riser, right? So I'm used to getting up and being online, you know, at 5.30 or 6 o'clock with a cup of coffee. But that's not how this industry functions. And so it's completely different than any other business I've been in. Uh, so I still think, yeah, I think we got a lot, to, a lot to offer as an industry. And I think we should collaborate more. It's funny you say that because if I go to a cannabis conference, you know, it doesn't start till 10 in the morning. But if I go to Ashray, there's a 6 a.m. breakfast that I have to go to. Uh, yep. If you could request any scientific study around cannabis or engineering study, what would it be? 
Oh, that's a really good question. You know what I'd like to do? I would like to figure out a way to integrate both AI into cultivation and processing. I would like to figure out a way that I can actually hook up something to these plants that tells me what its pulse is, what its heart rate is. Is it healthy? Is it not healthy? Is its liver working? Is it, is it you know, is everything functioning the way it should be? You know, I wish there was something I could plug into these girls and they would tell me what's going on with them. You know, the fact is that these are all females. They're raging hormone females. They're super, super finicky. They're super, super sensitive. Uh, it's the most finicky crop I've ever been around. Hey, now, I'm just saying. Uh, you know, they're always pent up hormones looking for a male. There's not a single male in the house. And so it would be interesting to know just what's going on with them. You know, I think we know about as much as we know, but that's not probably everything there is to know. I like it. I like it. So pull out your crystal ball, wipe it off, you know, clean it off. What do you predict for this industry in the next five to 10 years? Well, I see it definitely getting more advanced. I see a lot of players that are here today won't be here tomorrow. They're just not going to make it. There's going to be some nutrition in this industry. And then when this thing goes federal legal, it's a landscape change overnight. And how we adapt to that and how we manage that position is going to be critical for how this industry survives. And so, you know, this is, you know, the U.S. is a very strong nation. We're very smart. We're a little bit lazy, but we know, we know how to make money. And so we just got to figure out how to do this in a forward-thinking market that's going to be changing fairly quickly, both on technology and regulatory-wise. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with that statement. So, Wayne, question of the podcast. What do plants crave? <laughs> uh, they crave attention. Nice. They crave attention from so many angles, it's not even funny. <laughs> like any good female, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm glad you said it, not me. Yeah, well, I yeah. You kind of threw up the softball there. I had to. I had to hit it. <laughs> so, so Wayne, I have a, a few sort of rapid fire questions for you to end end our conversation. So, if you're ready, I'm going to hit you and just answer briefly. You know, you can go into depth if you want, but just maybe one or two sentences to answer each okay. of these questions. All right. So, number one. Are plants extroverts or introverts? Oh, gosh. Uh, huh. I would say they're both, depending on what cultivar you're dealing with. It's cultivar the pepper? Yeah. Do you feel like expanding on that? Is there one cultivar you're thinking that's an extrovert and one that's an introvert? And would they get along? Would they get married? No, they went, well, they could get married. You could have two females uh, get married. Yeah, we don't we don't put those two in the same room together. It could be a cat fight. <laughs> so they're more like oil and water. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay. Can cannabis create a more sustainable world, Wayne? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, we haven't even, we haven't even really get, we haven't really even got hemp off the ground, right? That's true. And there's a huge market for hempers who play for hemp and textiles and furniture and rope and all kinds of stuff that we. I mean, we all know it, but we really haven't tapped the value of that. And um, so I think, yeah, I think the answer is yes. Okay, last question. What, if, if you were using an anaerobic digester, okay, to produce biogas, which would produce more energy? A thousand pounds of unprocessed oranges or a thousand pounds of cannabis leaves, stems, and fiber? Ooh, so I actually might know the answer to this. So there's this thing that we use in this industry, in the biogas industry, is called uh, biomethane potential testing. And this is where you basically stick a substrate and inoculant in a reactor that is running at mesophilic temperature. So it's a mimicking a digester. And you measure the, the gas quantity and the gas quality of that substrate. And actually, believe it or not, cannabis and hemp both are fairly good anaerobic digester substrate. Citrus, like you mentioned, though, is high, high in sugar. So the problem is you can't feed it to a digester straight up. It's, it'll, it's like me and you, right? We like cake for a minute, but we only have so much of it before we get sick. 
digesters can get sick too from having too much uh, too much sweets. So you have to have this right mixture of nitrogen and carbon to make it work. But inherently, the orange would make more gas, but not for very long. The biomass from hemp or cannabis would continue to make gas and quite a bit of gas for a long time. Very cool. So if you built your anaerobic digester there, would you use cannabis then? Cannabis waste? Yeah, absolutely. We would take all of our food waste, all of our green waste, and we would throw it in this thing to make gas, and we'd use it to power up the facility. That's cool. How much, I guess, fresh weight? What if you, you use fresh weight, right? Not dry weight for an anaerobic digester? Yeah. Right, use fresh weight, yeah. How much would you need for a certain unit of energy? What would actually make it <clears throat> profitable? Or so I can, I can, yeah, I can give you a rough idea. So a cannabis project alone doesn't make enough biomass to make it work, okay? You need other, other organic substrates. But I can give you an example. So I ran a digester project that was about a million-gallon digester. And we used both manure and food waste in that digester. And that, that ran a 650-kilowatt engine around the clock. And then we actually powered up a jail that was on site, a nursing home, uh, some office buildings. We heated all those as well. And then we sold the excess energy to the grid underneath the power purchase agreement to the utility. But I would say that million-gallon tank and that 630-kilowatt engine could run easily four 20-foot by 80-foot rooms filled full of cannabis with HPS lights. So that gives you some kind of an energy balance of what we're what you're looking at. Would that be like a 50-50 mix of food waste and manure? That project was primarily manure with about 20% food waste. Um, but we also got tip fees for all that organic matter. So we got paid for taking in crap. And then we got paid for making that energy. So we got paid on both ends. That sounds like a good business plan to me. And then you take the digestate from that digester, which is still organically rich. And then you mix it with some more green waste. And then you produce a really nice compost. And then you sell that. Ask. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so then all your waste, all your waste product also turns into a revenue stream. So why don't we have these digesters all over the place? We should. I think we should look at Europe. Europe has them everywhere. That's where this all technology, that's where digesters originated from, primarily in Germany. There's over 4,000 biogas plants in Germany alone. I mean, you can stick Germany in, inside of California and still have two-thirds of land left around it, just as an example. You know, we may have a couple thousand digester plants to the U.S. There's not that many. Wow. Well, your your last rapid fire question wasn't very rapid, but it was really interesting. <laughs> I really liked it. Wayne, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I really liked getting to talk about energy with you and some alternative energies and your perspective on growing in the Central Valley and, and water use efficiency and labor. Um, yeah, this was really fun to talk to you. Thank you. Well, it's fun to have somebody to geek out with because my wife doesn't indulge in these conversations very often. And uh, when I do, it's a very, very short conversation. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to say the point. It's off. Go fix it. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to listen and go, yep, that's me. <laughs> cool. Well, I look forward to coming to visit you, hopefully, in the near future. Yeah, good luck with everything and your your newest endeavors. I can't wait to try your Skittles. That sounds fun. Uh, let me know where I'm there on the market. I will not. It's a pleasure. It's always fun hanging out and talking with you. All right. Thanks, Wayne. Take care. Bye. That was Dr. Nadia Saba interviewing Wayne Bishop, CEO of Seven Points, for our series, What Plants Crave. Tune in next week to hear directly from our workshop attendees. The Dr. Greenhouse Spring Workshop is happening May 5th and 6th, which means you still have a few days to register too. I'm Dennis Wadan, and this has been The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for listening.